cliffcentral.com. You're listening to The Bounce Show with Byron Karpinski. I'm Hugh Bladen, and it's on clivecentral.com. Um, it's Cliff Central, Blades, and it's Ben Karpinski. Why didn't you tell me? Ben Karpinski on cliffcentral.com. Welcome to it's new week, new episode of the Bounce Show. With me, Ben Karpinski, all the big weekend sports coming up. An interview with Chris Bentley. We're talking golf this morning. Right here, cliffcentral.com. Yeah, I work on my intros really hard, as you can see. So, what a weekend it was. Hey, Super Rugby was finally back, and with that, we could all just sit back and know that at some stage, there was going to be live rugby on. A beautiful thing, that, of course. So, if you're going to wake up early in the morning, you can have like a nice fry-up and a cup of coffee, and there's live rugby. Later on, you can have a bry and a piss-up, and live rugby, it's there. It's all there. It's so cool. I really, really enjoyed it. I went down to Cape Town. I went down with the fine people of uh, Bright Rock. I went to their really cool suite, and I got to see rugby again. It was like... I totally forgot how much I missed the game. You know, it's great, like, watching golf and crickets and, you know, obviously everything on TV. But being at the stadium again and watching those collisions and those hits and watching how the guys run off the ball, it was so cool. And the Stormers, wow, they played well. And, you know, it's an opening game of the season. I was expecting it to be very dull. Uh, lots of penalties, lots of handling errors. But 24-0 at halftime? Jeez, go Stormers. They, or. Oh. Very, very encouraging. It looked a very, very well-drilled side, looked well-conditioned, and, um, you know, you, you should never get excited about week one. Sharks fans will remind us of that <laughs> as a Stormers fan. But still, you know, you celebrate what you can in sports. I told you, this is the year we're going to be very positive about it, and this is the year we're going to get excited about Super Rugby again. Well, then, if you do well in my Super Brew pool, the bounce pool has got a nice amount of people now. We got over the thousand mark last week so we all played for great prizes and of course so much pride and bragging rights it's uh, Bob Sinclair in the beginning here for you summer moonlight so we got uh, another interview around the golfing fronts we've got Chris Bentley now Chris Bentley is the CEO of the Royal Johannesburg Kensington Golf Club the club that just hosted the Joburg Open so, uh, well, what an event that was. Sort of pity with so much rain, it was to reduce the 54 holes. So, um, I caught up with Chris late last week to chat about golf. A uh, very, very insightful guy who's done so much in golf. He's one of those guys that you think, like, how the hell are you younger than me? You've done so much in your life, and you're such a cool guy. So I kind of just picked his brain about a couple of things. Obviously, what it goes into hosting a European tour event for a golf club, and just golf in general here in South Africa, and how we're looking forward to the, the future. 
So I'll bring you that in the second half hour. But first half hour, of course, we've got to get into all the headlines. And there is just so much to get into. So let's just get straight into it. And uh, let's talk rugby. Before we get into the Super Rugby, of course, the Six Nations is still going strong. Now, the Six Nations is a tournament which people believe is maybe better than the rugby championship nowadays. We've got strength versus strength, unless Italy are playing. Uh, and we've got um, very competitive Great attended matches, and uh, everyone gets very really excited about it. Scotland, well, they used to be the Minnows. They used to be some whipping boys as well. But now they have won, uh, I think, two of the three games so far. They lost to France, but they beat Ireland. And now they've beaten, Scot- uh, they've beaten Wales. So they're in our third place. And uh, Scotland, with this last win, they go ahead of South Africa now in the IRB, so the World Rugby Rankings. Yeah, I don't know how I really feel about that. Like, I'm really happy for Scotland because they've always been that team that plays with so much heart and they really commit everything only to be beaten by teams in the last 10 minutes. So we go to the last World Cup when they, they really had the beating of Australia until a uh, contentious refereeing decision saw them out of the World Cup. So two big wins, huh? They've been on the cusp of something so good for so long now. And I think what they're doing is they're giving the right sort of overseas talent to come in. They've got really good coaching. They've got a lot of belief. And it's also, you know, everything goes in peaks and troughs. You can't always be great at sport. You can't always be cuck either. So this is their upward spiral right now. So go on, Scotland. 29-13, they beat the Welsh. Uh, Wales, of course, they're really battling because they lost Warren Gatlin. Gatlin is the British and Irish Lions coach, okay? So he can't do both. So he's still kind of involved in Wales. He's still, I'm sure, is there in touch and he's consulting. But he's not all hands on deck there. And it's starting to show as well. Ireland, they beat France 19-9. So Ireland still got a sniff of trying to win this thing. A tournament which was basically um, preordained as England's next big win because they won last year so emphatically unbeaten. And they've got this whole long unbeaten streak, uh, streak that they're trying to maintain. So uh, France, um, they went down there. So 19-9, which means Ireland now in second place, three points behind England on the log. England, who now top it after beating Italy 36-15. Now, it was an interesting match in that um, Ireland, um, sorry, Italy. Let's get my names confused here. Um, Italy, you know they're going to go into that game and you know they're going to lose, right? So what they've got to try to do is they haven't got the resources, they haven't got the manpower, they haven't got anything that's going to beat England. So they thought they would just have a look at the rules and have a bit of a dig at trying something different. So they were all over them in defense, the English. And uh, the, the players didn't adapt because, quite simply, they thought that the guys were running offside. So they were just basically crowding their back line with defenders and they weren't committing to the ruck. So when there is no ruck, there is no offside line. That's about as simple as I can put it to you. But here's um, Eddie Jones' take after the match. Eddie, of course, he's got a really great team. He's making loads of money. He's always all smiles, okay? His team has just won 17 games in a row. 18 is the world record, which they'll get against Scotland next. And uh, here's Eddie having a very candid take on what he thought the, the Italian tactics were like. Talk about the, the Italian tactics. What did you make of them? Well, obviously, been watching Trevor Chapel. Remember Trevor Chapel in the under on ball, under on ball along the ground. Make sure you can't hit a six. So you know, well done, to Italy. Uh, very smart. Well, we knew they'd come with something. We weren't sure. Uh, they took the game to the nth degree today, and it wasn't rugby. So we haven't played a game of rugby yet. I think we might have to go out and train after this. Did it ruin the game? Uh, look. I- yeah, I'm not critical of Italy. They did what they needed to do to stay in the game, and they did that. Uh, did we react quick enough? Like, it's hard when you don't play rugby. You know, it's like playing a different game out there. 
you mentioned about reacting. It, it felt as if it needed half-time messages from the coaches before the players started to act. Were you happy with the way the players were reacting in that first half especially? Oh, look, yeah, I think you can always be quicker. I think you can always be quicker, but it's difficult, you know. One of the things, if your halfback can't pass the ball, the game becomes difficult. It's not the way we want to play the game. You know, we wanted to to move the ball. We wanted to to play some good rugby today, but it was difficult. And you know, I thought our adjustments was good. We scored six tries, and as I just said, at, at the end of three rounds, if we were undefeated with a bonus point, we'd be doing handstands. So we're doing handstands. We don't have to do clean out practice anymore. But should you, after 10, 15 minutes, have gone, right, all those structures we've practised for, for weeks, let's forget about them, let's offload, let's pop off the floor, let's take the ruck out of the game, so, so almost say to Italy, right, try these tactics, we're going to adapt to them and change. Yeah, Chris, I think that's easier said than done. It's, yeah, it's difficult, because uh, you're not playing rugby anymore, you're playing a different game. Yeah, you know, how can you have people standing in your attack line? And that's what was happening today. And even when there was rucks, there's still people standing in our attack line. So you look to pass the ball and there's a blue jumper there, you look in front there's a blue jumper there's blue jumpers everywhere I think at one stage they must have had 20 players on the field and the ref can't see two things at once can he he can't watch what's going on in, at the breakdown while also seeing someone behind his well, back he had a terrible day let's be honest he had a terrible you weren't happy with how he performed oh, look he had a terrible day because he wasn't refereeing rugby and he's a rugby referee so you know he wasn't refereeing rugby we've got to come up for a new name new name for it no ruck rugby or whatever you want to call it I'm sure Trevor Chappell would have been proud today but were you happy with, with the way Ramapuat interpreted what the Italians were doing and the way he communicated with the players look I don't have an opinion on the referee he's, he's got to look after the game you know all I'm worried about is my team and we've got Scotland in two weeks which is going to be fantastic because they're already talking it up you know they've got belief they've got confidence confidence leads to better performances better performances leads to high expectation and now they've got to carry around the burden of, of Scotland's expectation for the next two weeks so we're looking forward to them coming down and playing and I'm sure they're going to play proper rugby do you think this might well, be Well, it is quite exciting prospect. Of course, these guys do take breaks. They don't play every single week like um, more Southern Hemisphere stuff does. But uh, yeah, no rack rugby, all that kind of stuff. Look, it, obviously, there's certain things you can do. And, and the Italians weren't cheating at all. It's a slight loophole they found. And they were doing their best to contain a team. That's all it was. That's where the Treville Chapel, uh, the Chapel reference came from, is that he rolled the ball at the end of that game so he couldn't be hit for six. So, yeah. <sighs> Eddie Jones, I've got to say, he's in a position where he can give really, really great press conferences. So with Scotland and this this belief that they've got, if they can somehow, somehow beat England, why, well, we just change everything up there right now. Like I said, England are just basically going through this tournament, and one win after the other, they're going to just eclipse um, New Zealand's winning record of 18. But we'll catch back up with that again, uh, close to time for the next round of matches. Let's get into Super Rugby. Now, it was an action-packed uh, round one, starting in, on Thursday. Uh, the Blues absolutely hammered the Rebels. Tough one to get, margin point-wise, if you are playing Super Brew. Um, you know, you, you go into every weekend, you look at it, you can pick the winners, and you think by how many. I don't think a lot of people would have picked uh, the Blues by such a handsome margin, because last year the Rebels won at home in this match, and the Blues, they won at home, you know, so they're quite evenly matched. Um, and normally these, you know, these kind of matches are area strewn in the first round, but the Blues, sure, hit the straps early on, 56-18. Then the Highlanders versus the Chiefs, this was a bit of a surprise to me. The Chiefs are an incredible team, right? They just have, they have the ability to just blow people away and just play incredible rugby. The Highlanders may be more conservative, but more calculated in their attack. They had no answer to what the Chiefs had. The Chiefs had so much 
less of the ball. But the thing is, they kicked it like it was a vintage New Zealand performance that the kicking was intelligent. They took all the opportunities and ultimately they scored a lot more points. So 24-15, the Chiefs win that one, which then brought us on to the Reds versus the Sharks. And um, look, it was one of those games that you always felt was going to be, it could go either way. It was going to be very, very tight. But when you got into that second half and the Reds got two yellow cards, um, you, you look at it from a Sharks perspective and say they've really dropped the ball here with a lack of BMT, lack of composure, lack of senior figures standing forward, um, or just Pat Lambie. You know, he had a kick to win it and he missed it. So there's many things you can blame there. But ultimately, first game of the season. So let's not be too critical. But of course, they do go down in this one, 28-26. Sunbulls um, versus the Hurricanes. Now, I switched this on at the hour mark, and it was 83-5 to the Hurricanes. So I thought, this is it. This is going to be the first Super Rugby 100. It's going to happen. Of course, the Sunwolves didn't play any of the New Zealand teams last year. They just played the Aussies, and they played some South African teams. So it's quite the rude awakening now they're going to play the New Zealand teams that are just, they're relentlessly good in that they're physically strong. They're incredibly quick, skill levels off the charts, and they're just always finding ways to run the ball. So it's a difficult thing to contain if you haven't got a side that can match any of those elements, let alone all of them. But to the credit of the Sunwolves, they limited the scoring. The Hurricanes didn't score at all in the last 20 minutes. And uh, the the, um, sorry, the Sunwolves managed to actually get some points of their own. Philly Brits from South Africa, he scored a try in the end there. And uh, 83-17, the final score. Crusaders then host the Brumbies. And uh, Crusaders were pitched to kind of win this one by about 10 points. You think the Brumbies have lost a few players. And, uh, well, Crusaders as well, obviously, you know, they always start the season very, very slowly. Um, they won that one 17-13 in the end. It wasn't a great match, but uh, it wins a win at this stage. And the Waratahs, I don't think anyone watched this match. It's one of those sleepy Aussie derbies that we, you just look at the result afterwards and take it from there. 19-13, the Waratahs won. Then it was two South Africa for those matches. Cheetahs took on the Lions, and uh, the Lions were very stuttery. It was mainly just penalties being uh, exchanged in the initial stages. The pitch was very wet, and it wasn't a great rugby match. An even worse crowd, I must add. I mean, the Cheetahs are the Curry Cup champions, right? Uh, the Lions, SA's best team. Got to think nice, big local match first up. And the stands were really, really empty. It was very disappointing that people at Bloom didn't come out to watch this one. Uh, even more disappointing when the Lions scored right at the death. Uh, Rowan Jans from Rensburg scored the try there, and the Lions winning that one 28-25. Equally terrible crowd at, in PE for the Kings versus the Jaguars. Uh, Jaguars, of course, in true true fashion, took many a yellow card. At one stage, they had 13 men in the field, which allowed the Kings to kind of have a more flattering scoreline. But ultimately, only really one team in it. The Jaguars scoring 39 to the Kings 26, which then got us into the final match. And that was the Bulls versus the Stormers. The Bulls going to Newlands. And, uh, well, some people were saying it was going to be the Bulls are going to win on paper. They had a very attractive side. But, uh, she said Stormers side. They came out first 10 minutes or so. It wasn't the greatest game. It was just feeling each other out. But wow, the way the Stormers went about just sort of dismantling this team. Amazing forward performance. Really, really great in the scrums. The platform was set. And the backs were just doing exactly what they needed to do. It was well-worked, well-calculated tries. Damien Dallander had a good game. He was distributing well. Um, the whole backline looked good. It really did. And at 24-0 at halftime, there was just nothing in it for this Bulls team. It really was quite disappointing from their perspective. But for the Stormers, great start. It really, really was. This is their first try. Um, you know, taking opportunities. It's great to see a team thinking on their feet like this. 
It's Primero, the new signing. He was discarded by the Kings, discarded by the Sharks, discarded by the Bulls, and now he's got a place with the Stormers. So he's their fullback. So um, where to from here? Well, again, it's just too early to kind of work out. We can't just say that the Lions are one-hit wonder and they've now got a tough season ahead. Just like we can't say that the Stormers, well, they're going to be amazing. This this, this is going to be it. Nick Mellett, of course, who is the oracle of all things rugby in this country, he made mention of sort of like um, a New Zealand-esque performance in that they didn't take a lot of carries. They kicked the ball intelligently, just like the Chiefs did, and a very, very similar thing. They weren't just bashing up and just having carries for the sake of carries. This is because this team is becoming better drilled. Robbie Fleck now has a second full season with this team, and it's starting to show. These things are starting to embed, and when you've got good players and you've got a lot of confidence and you've got a hometown support, these good things can lead to greater things. So that's pretty much it for Super Rugby. Like I said, it's week one. We don't want to get too much into this. We don't want to draw too many sort of um, parallels to last year's performance, that kind of stuff. So from next week onwards, we'll get a bit more in-depth and I'll have some guests involved. But this week, it's back on the map. Those are the results. Those are the winners. Those are the losers. It's going to be a great season ahead. And, well, I've been saying this and after the first week, I'm feeling pretty optimistic about it. On to football, there was PSL action. There was League Cup action in England. There was the English Premier League whole bunch of football as you always expect um, start with the, the Premier uh, Soccer League here in South Africa there was some movements at the top so Sibisport United they beat Highlands Park just like everyone else does Highlands Park just looking lackluster in the truest sense of the word 1-0 Sibisport United won there so they're on top Sundance though they beat Fitz 2-0 so Sundance putting together a really handy streak here they're now fifth they're three points behind Sibisport United but they've got four games in hand of course, with their continental commitments, you know, they had to skip a few rounds, but they've got four games in hand. They're just three points back. Really, really exciting to see. Chiefs, well, Steve Compella believes that they have to win everything from here to try or win the title. They drew with IS Cape Town, who are making a real resurgence in the second half of the season here. So that 1-1 does not help the Chiefs. Also, with the Pirates, doesn't help if they keep drawing matches too. They drop points at home against Polo Kwani City. Also 1-1, and also that they're never going to get banned, are these guys, huh? Never, ever going to happen. There's still nothing coming out of that pitch invasion, and the unruly fans, nothing at all. I think the, their next task is the big sweater derby. Well, we'll see how that goes for them there. Uh, Cape Town City, they're also one of the weekend. They beat Barack of FC 3-0. Barack of firmly, firmly rooted to the foot of the table now. And again, between them and Highlands Park, it's not looking like this is going to be the future for them, this league. In the League Cup final, well, this is going to be the big one for the weekend, of course. Man United, the resurgent Man United, were in the first chance of silverware for Jose Mourinho and his team. And they took on Southampton. And um, again, it was Zlatan Ibrahimovic who basically saved the day, saved the blushes, saved everything, really. This guy has been absolutely sensational since he's got to Old Trafford. Everyone was saying he's too old, he's kind of past it, he's just there for one final payday. Well, screw that, huh? For Man United so far, he's played 38 games. He scored 26 goals. And just remember, this guy is 35. There's no doubting his best days are behind him because it's 35. You know, it's, <laughs> I'm 35. I know my best days physically are behind me. So he's been such a revelation to this team. And if it wasn't for him, you know, where would Man United be? They would be expecting amazing things out of Martial. They would have to get amazing things out of Rooney just to kind of stay at this level. And all too often, he's just helping them out. He helped them out with the winner of the weekend. And uh, he's just been an amazing signing. Here's some of his thoughts after the match. Good. It's the second trophy with the club. And, uh, after seven months, we have two trophies, and uh, yeah, I'm happy for that. And uh, this is why I came. I came to win. 
and, uh, and I'm winning. So it's all about bringing back the club, the club back to, to where it belongs. And that's, that's when they win the trophies. It says that we believe in something we're doing. And uh, we keep going, we keep training hard, we do sacrifice and we're winning. This is, like I said, after seven months, I have two trophies with this club. There is other clubs that didn't win for 10 years. I mean, I won half and what they won in 10 years, so I'm happy. Not so subtle Arsenal dig there. Did you pick that up? Um, so, so, I mean, two, two, two trophies. Am I missing something here? What else have Man United won so far this season? It's been the League Cup and it's been... I don't know. I don't know. Got to think about that. So Zlatan's doing well there. And um, in the actual Premier League for itself, the weekend, their, their match versus Man City was postponed because of the League Cup commitment, uh, as was the game versus Southampton versus Arsenal. But Chelsea did play. They beat Swansea 3-0. And then Spurs, they played. They beat Stroke 4-0 with the first half hat-trick from Harry Kane, which means that uh, Spurs now go into second position. But you know, ultimately, they'll finish fifth. That's what happens. It's just going to happen. It'll happen again. So that's kind of all your big football from the weekend. Um, cricket, there was an absolute glut of cricket as well in a very, very good sense. It started off with, uh, well, on, on Friday, I couldn't believe it when I think Australia, they were bowled out for, what was it, two, um, 260. I thought that was a bit shy. They needed a good first total and they really threw some wickets away in the middle. And I thought India would absolutely eat them. But no, Steve O'Keefe, he got six for 35, not only in the first innings, but the second innings as well against India. India were rolled out for 105 and 107. They lasted all of 444 balls at the crease. And they lost by 333 runs because Australia posted 260. And then when they came out to bat after rolling India out for the first time, they scored 285 with Steve Smith scoring a masterful century. So first test, done and dusted. And it's the hammering. It's an absolute hammering. Now, we all know that India are the best-ranked team in the world when it comes to test cricket because they mostly just play at home. So it was really cool to see them getting getting it stuck to them at home. Virat Kohli, well, he failed for the first time in so long. He had a consecutive run of scoring double hundreds. That's how good he is. Not just scoring 50s or hundreds, double hundreds. Well, he scored zero and not much more in his second dig at the crease. And here he is, his thoughts after this match. Oh, crap, sorry. Uh, it's the wrong clip. Anyway, he <laughs> wasn't happy. So, um, as you would expect, it would be some sort of very somber kind of uh, interview there. But uh, it does beg the question, if India can't consistently roll you out at home, um, are teams going to be able to just go there knowing that um, you got to play a certain amount of cricket and you got to play in a certain way? Are they finally adapting to the whole spinning thing? Australia said they worked really hard at this and they went there with a game plan. And um, still, for Gallic O'Keefe to execute this, we all know it's going to be a spinning pitch, right? We all know you can open the bowling with spinners, just like Ashwin. Ashwin is a is a opening bowler. That's what he is. Um, O'Keefe was throwing the ball straight up, and this is you know it's quite something because Stark's going to be amazing on any surface because he can bowl a bloody quick Yorker and. He He's very abrasive. Hazelwood always got a good line of length, but they thought, screw it, let's just give O'Keefe the ball and see what happens. Nothing that happened in the beginning, but to get 12 wickets for 70 runs, that is the greatest, uh, the greatest figures for an overseas spin bowler in India in the history of the game. It really is amazing to now, now know where the test match is going to go. That's going to be really, really special. Another thing that was really, really special over the weekend was, again, the Proteas. Um, there's just so many superlatives going around with this team right now. And it was unfortunate that they had a bit of a slip-up in the second ODI when they went down by six runs in the end. But in this third one, 
Very, very good performance. Uh, SA batting first at the Caketon, which is the home of the Hurricanes rugby. They scored 271 for eights, and you, know, you might have thought that it was a few runs too little at the end there. It was a good comeback from a bit of a mid, uh, mid-innings wobble. The cock really good. He got another 50. Abe de Villas was at his masterful best again. Uh, the 100 was in the cards, unfortunately. Couldn't get it. But he had a good 80, which took him to 9,000 runs. Uh, got a bit of a feature around that towards the end of the show about AB's 9,000 runs. So, South Africa posted the total 278 for one. New Zealand, well, they were absolutely just bamboozled. They had no real handle of what was going on. And, uh, they lost the wickets early on. And, uh, Petroquire, he got two. Parnell got two. Rabada got two. But Dwayne Batorius, he got three wickets for five runs in 5.2 overs. Absolutely incredible, incredible bowling figures that. I really like the way this guy's shaping up. He showed in the previous match where he scored 50 off very few balls in the losing effort that he's definitely an all-rounder. And uh, just backing it up here with a fantastic bowling performance. Because, let's be honest, this Proteus team is looking really good right now, right? Now, we've said this so many different times, and then we get disappointed when they go to ICC trophy tournaments. But batting, I reckon, is solid. It really is. I know there's a few ums and ahs around the middle order around certain players, but it's a good batting lineup. Quinton the Cock is amazing. Obviously, he's going to be the opening batsman plus the keeper. Imran Tahir, dead set certainty. Uh, Kakisa Rabada, dead set certainty. Andila Petlaquire, I think for me, is a dead set certainty going forward in this team because he's only going to get better. And he hasn't been that bad to start with. Uh, but now Pretorius, if he's going to be solid, it really is something that's going to come close to filling that void, of course. Because Kyle Abbott with the ball, he is the answer in ODI, cric- in ODI cricket. So Pretorius doing this well, I'm suddenly getting very, very confident about this team. Um, not too confident, of course, but still, you have to be confident about this team. It's looking really, really good. So that was the crickets. This, um, the rest of the ODIs are going to be this Wednesday coming now will be the fourth ODI against uh, New Zealand. That'll be the 1st of March at 3 a.m. in the morning. Day-night match there. And then the fifth and final ODI, SA versus New Zealand, will be on Saturday. And you get that one from 3 o'clock as well. And then we're going to the three test matches. So 7th of March, first test starts. 15th of March, second test. And the 24th of March, that'll be the third test. It's been a good series so far. It really has. And I think where we're going, the Proteas, where we're going this year with the very, very long and tough season in England, both for the Champions Trophy and just your general season uh, tour, it is really great conditions. It's a really good tune-up. And if the boys can fire like this, it's going to be really, really great. Finally, in golf, it was uh, an action-packed weekend of golf because it was the Honda Classic in the US PGA Tour, which is always a great, great tournament. And uh, Ricky Fowler, he came good there. He's a guy who just has so much talent. He's such a likable guy. Everyone, you know, he draws huge crowds to the game. And uh, he's never converted a 54-hole uh, lead before. And uh, <laughs> he's looking pretty shaky towards the latter stage of the first nine as well. But he got a sensational birdie on, on 12. He had a four-stroke lead, which was whittled down to one at one stage. But he ended up kind of righting the ship and uh, across the bear trap, which is an infamous um, run of three holes on that golf course where there's just loads of water. Everyone else kind of fell aside. And Ricky won that one by four shots in the end, which is a really big deal for him. Um, he doesn't seem to win a whole bunch, but when he does, the big events really are. And in the Joburg Open, such a shame that there was so much rain. There was more than, I think, um, what was it? It was like 400 millimeters of rain fell on this golf course. 
before the final the final round even started. It was unfortunately curtailed to a 54 hole tournament. So, with it, it is the biggest golf tournament in the world, in that there's over 200 professionals playing. Okay, so I think it's 210 professionals, and um, there was across two golf courses at Royal Johannesburg and Kensington here in Johannesburg. It's a fantastic course. The East Course is just an absolute beast. The West is slightly easier, but there's no gimme. They're both stunning, stunning courses. So that beautiful old Parklands layout, big established trees, lushes all hell. It's just an amazing course. And it's something the pros look forward to. You know, it's a really great base for such a tournament. So they managed to get through the first two rounds. And then, wow, the Rangers kept going and going and going. And uh, eventually down to 54 holes. Darren Trichard, he was pretty solid throughout. Took his opportunities and came away as the one-shot winner. So it's really cool because not, if you win this event, not only do you win, no, it's a pretty handsome check as well, 2.6 million uh, rand. It's a European Tour title, plus you get to play in the Open Championship, which this year be in Royal Birkdale. So it's really cool for Darren Fickard. It is his, I think, fifth time he's won in the, on the European Tour. And getting into his 40s now, it's probably probably one he'll, he'll save a, a, a great deal in that um, you know when you get into your 40s you get later stages there's so much happening around you in sports which is kind of cool because you kind of go under the radar a bit but to know that you can still mix it up with the best of them and still be as as, as strong as he was over this week really really big deal that which leads us out of our headlines uh, I've got a few more stories I want to get to later on but now we're going to play um, a little chat I recorded with Chris Bentley now, Chris is someone that I've managed to get to know through the golfing industry. Um, he started out his life as a professional golfer. He gave it a good dig. It wasn't going to be, um, so he took the very mature decision to try and get into more of the business side of golf. So I sat down with him, and um, there's a little interview I want to play for you right now. Basically, I, I as you know, I, I love golf. Everything about golf, I'm basically obsessed with. I'm totally okay with, with admitting that. So I wanted to kind of know what goes into running a really big club. Um, what goes into kind of, you know, keeping golf relevant when there's so many different distractions nowadays. And also just what goes into hosting a big event like the Joburg Open. See the work that Chris and his team got through to make sure that course was playable when literally, I mean, as I said, there was 400 millimeters of rain. Like the Vol Dam is now at 100%. There was just so much water in this area. And uh, Chris and his team were absolutely amazing throughout. So here's my talk with him. And then we're going to come back, and then I'm going to have some more great sporting stories with you here on The Bounce Show. So it is Johannesburg Open Week this week, which, of course, uh, of course, is pre-recorded, so it's just passed. But I'm sitting here with Chris Bentley from Royal Johannesburg and Kensington Golf Course. Now, this is a course that's very dear to me, and it's very dear to the Johannesburg landscape. So I just want to chat to Chris about the club, uh, what goes into um, hosting an amazing golfing event like the Joburg Open, and just golf in general. You know, I, I try to bring up golf as much as I can on the show, uh, whether you like it or not. I know it's more niche than widespread the widespread like the spring box or cricket or anything like that but I believe it's it's one of those sports that not only creates a massive employment it creates a huge excitement around um, anybody be able to play so it is something that's dear to my heart and hopefully dear to yours as well so Chris thanks so much for joining me here today uh, we are sitting in your wonderful office which always reminds me of Butler's cabin at Augusta this really is quite a, <laughs> quite a space that you've created for yourself yeah listen thanks for um, the interview it's uh, great to have you here at Raw. Um, yeah, very excited for the for the week, and uh, yeah, I think um, we've got exciting times ahead. So, looking around your office, and uh, which reminds me, I should actually go interview people in their situations more often. It's a bit <laughs> more interesting in the studio. Golf's obviously been a massive part of your life right from the beginning. How did you get into kind of golf and formalize it into the career that you have as now? 
So like most young guys, you know, um, started playing golf watching my dad, um, grew up in Pretoria, and, you know, you aspire to, to get out on tour and you, you watch guys like Gary Player and Trevor Immelman and, and you want to kind of walk in their footsteps. But the reality is, is that it's a really hard way to make a living. Yeah. Um, and so I managed to turn pro after I matriculated and I tried it out for a while, but I quickly learned that I wasn't going to be able to make a buck. Um, so I decided that I needed to study, and I took on an apprenticeship at Benoni Country Club. Uh, did that for five years, and then I was quite fortunate to to fall in the Serengeti development, which okay. I was part of for five or six years, and it was really exciting. We we hosted a couple of cool tournaments there as well. Yeah, you guys had the SAP of quite a while. That's right, yeah, okay. 2011 and uh, 2012. And, uh, yeah, very exciting. Got to spend some time with guys like Henrik Stenson. And and that's where I really learned um, the logistics around major events um, and all the kind of things that go into the Joburg Open. I pull a lot of knowledge from those events. Great. So as far as golf clubs, you hear a lot of doom and gloom nowadays as far as participation is concerned. And people are saying that, you know, there's too much time is needed to invest it into golf. And then the part that really kind of makes me get really angry is that people are migrating towards cycling. <laughs> um, for me, that is like basically you've given up in life. Um, but that's obviously a very hard and strident opinion. What are some of the like, you know, obviously the, the best person to ask about any of this would be you. What are some of the sort of like tangible realities here like what are the big challenges as far as running a top level golf club nowadays and getting people to really sort of buy into the whole country club lifestyle or at the very least just becoming you know active golfers i think you know holistically in the industry um there's no silver bullet answer um you know royal specifically is 125 years old and it's got um, a decent bank account to be able to cover expenditure and be able to roll out sustainable plans. But um, holistically, the industry is just, you know, oversupply and under demand. Um, there's too many golf courses, um, not enough golfers. And like you say, guys are moving into cycling. And, and I think the big thing there is that lifestyles have just changed. Um, 20 years ago, you used to go drink at your local pub. Yeah. Um, you know that was your local club sorry and now you've got 40 pubs surrounding clubs you know there was no dross and um you know places like baron on main you know that didn't exist you used to go drink at your club and and that's what you did and you know then you'd play golf there and and you'd you'd have a type of lifestyle there and then i think the last big thing impacting um the golf industry is that families are very different now the dynamic is you know that it's not just about the husband and you know the wives work and you know you want to spend time with your kids um so i think clubs these days need to have a sustainable plan i think we're going to see a lot of mergers happening in the industry um which would right size things um not nice to see any golf courses close but in terms of sustainability um mergers would be really good and and to try find a balance um, of expenditure between clubs maybe it's sharing assets and things like that that would make a huge difference but I think the number one trick is a sustainable plan that all members and um, you know kind of stakeholders buy into and they all work towards the same vision and that has to include family if family is not included um, I don't think golf clubs are going to survive 
Well, it's interesting you mentioned that. Obviously, one of the more high-profile mergers was Royal Johannesburg coming Royal Johannesburg and Kensington. You know, back in the day, you'll always hear Del Hayes and the stories and those guys playing in that that course, obviously close to the, the Joburg CBD, which was great in this day. But the reality is there's just so many golf courses. Now, I'm not just saying this because I am in your office interviewing you, but as far as golf courses go, um, Royal is rather progressive. You see it in the weekend, quite a young membership base, uh, a lot younger than the other places I play golf at in Johannesburg. Are there any particular steps that you guys are looking for? I know there's like a, there's a future plan here. I mean, you're very forward thinking. But are there any particular elements that you are excited about as far as incorporating here into Royal? And, and with that, hopefully um, answering a couple of those questions. Yeah, so I think, you know, to, to give you a simple answer, golf is not enough. Um, golf needs a lot of surrounding things to make it work. Um, you know, at Royal specifically, we looked at it and and said, what kind of club do we want to see in 10 years' time and what kind of club do we want to see, you know, for our kids and grandkids, et cetera, et cetera. So um, we've, we've looked at um, moving out uh, three tranches of land, which we're currently paying rates and taxes on. It's a forest area and we can't, you know, there's nothing that can be done with that land. So... We, we decided that we were going to look at a, a property development and we've gone into a, a great deal with a property developer and we're going to add in additions like a, a private kiddies clubhouse, um, a spa, a gym and all in all with our go- two golf courses, that model with annuity income in perpetuity will make this club sustainable pretty much forever. My lawyer says there's no such thing as forever but <laughs> 99 years it will be here. And um, it will be sold as a premium product, but easily accessible to the public. Now, the whole thing about being accessible to the public, people will harp on about that all the time. There are some plans afoot um, globally for 12-hole golf courses. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I actually think it's quite exciting. Um, and I, and I, think, I think that plugs into a couple of other things. You know, um, Elon Musk, is, he's just launched this, this solar tile for your roof at home. And I think... You know, in 2030, I think scorecards will be collectibles. I think there will be 12-hole golf courses in sustainable or self-sustainable estates um, that will be kind of off the grid. And, and, and I think that's the road that, it, that it's going down. Um, you're looking at guys like Tiger Woods. He's just built a 12-hole interchangeable golf course in Mexico. Wow. It's absolutely fantastic. And your captains of industry um, in that part of the world have all bought in immediately. Um, so I see, you know, South Africa specifically, you know, we're about five years behind the States. You know, when when CD shops in America closed, five years later they started closing here. Sure. And it's pretty similar in the golf industry. So getting back to the full-fat 18-holes championship layout, of course you have two golf courses here making 36 great holes. It is the home of the Johannesburg Open. And uh, looking out your window here, all the pros are fine-tuning their games for the week. Now, what exactly goes into something like this? As a as a golfer or as a sports fan, we, we turn the TV on on the weekend, here's a beautiful golf course, and here are, are a whole bunch of really good guys playing golf. You know, this is something that's so... I don't know how you even get me time this week to get in here because there is so much to do with it being a european tour co-sanctioned event are there a lot of role players that you've got to kind of incorporate and sort of manage or is a lot of this kind of stuff out of your hands once it becomes an international event like this so i think the easiest thing with with the joburg open specifically is that 
you know, this is the home of the Joburg Open. So it's here every year. Um, you know, we've got a 400-page planning document. Um, and wow. that's between yeah, have, the have you read all of that? <laughs> or, or did you write it? <laughs> Year one. Um, and, uh, you know, and that includes all the role players and includes all the logistics involved. Um, but what, what we're fortunate about is that the guys arrive here, they know the, the facility, they know where they can plug in, where they can walk, where they can't. So, so that really helps. When you're doing um, a tournament on a new site, that is a completely different animal. Um, Joburg Open specifically, we start looking at our planning documents between the European Sunshine Promoter and City of Johannesburg about six months before. A lot of the infrastructure stays the same, but we review every single detail. Um, so six months before we start with the paperwork, and then at least two months before the event, we'll all get together and we'll start ticking the boxes of what's required. On behalf of the club, we start preparations on course about three and a half months before the event. Um, we start looking at what kind of corporate identity we need to implement for the tournament, what kind of pin flags we need, um, tournament poles, rakes, etc., etc. Um, and by tournament week, uh, generally we are 99% done unless it rains like it has recently. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um the future of the Joburg Open obviously is, is one of those things, just like the future of the Chuana Open. You know, there's some interesting, I would say, political uh, dynamics coming into play here. Expenditure in government, and this is a bit more of a serious point. You know, it's not something I want to end on. But as far as looking forward, um, how viable is it, do you believe, for big sponsors to be involved in big events? Whenever we look at the USPGA Tour... We look at, um, I mean, they've got millionaires happening, like being crowned every week because that's how much money's in the purses there. Mm. The Joburg Open's been a great event. It's been a big purse here. The Schwana Open, same thing. ASA Open, these are big co-sanctioned events. But if you take away government money, if you take away the big sponsors, I mean, do you think there's a new sustainable way of getting tournaments here as far as creating um, an environment where pros can still make a living here in SA? Um, good question. Uh, look, I think... The rand hurts us to start. Um, yeah, I, was, you know. I was guessing you were going to go there. <laughs> um, you know, you know, these guys need to come over here. They need a reason to come over. They're playing for um, the equivalent of eighteen million rand a tournament over in Europe. Um, yeah. They're coming all the way here on a you know eleven to sixteen hour flight um, for sixteen and a half million. And if we don't have back to back tournaments, that also doesn't make it lucrative enough for them. So um, the RAND hurts us. I think I've been fortunate over the last two weeks to spend some time with the new mayor of Joburg, um, Mr. Mashaba, and he's a really great guy. Um, he pointed out some really vital things um, that not even I knew about the tournament, but it, it plays such a major role in the tourism sector. Um, statistics like every, every 12 visitors that come into this country create one job. Wow. So um, from a in terms of job creation within within government, um, that ticks that box. In terms of marketing, um, you know, a world class African city, um, this gets distributed to four hundred million households. Fifty eight sure. countries worldwide. And I, I think those kind of statistics obviously um, you know they 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 kind of say to government you need to be involved in this you need to make sure this goes ahead um and then obviously what's something that we've been driving for years is the development of golf 
um, taking golf into areas of disadvantaged kids and putting a golf club in their hand. Um, I watched Trevor Immelman this morning teaching a little boy, eight years old, how to grip a golf club and hit it. And I promise you, after five swings, this little boy hit it 100 meters straight down the middle of the fairway. Wow. And, you know, just to give them that opportunity, and that's due to Joburg Open. You know, because of the Joburg Open, we've managed to get into areas that wouldn't normally have, um, you know, that kind of opportunity. And who knows, that little boy could be the next um, Tiger Woods out of South Africa. I mean, I couldn't think of anything better um, as a as a marketing tool for your country. Well, if, if not that, you know, if he doesn't become a pro like you, I mean, you, you gave it your best shot, didn't quite work out, but you're a success now and you're giving back to the industry. Absolutely. I just think that uh, golf is one of those things that people don't quite they don't quite buy into it enough that there's so many different levels to it and I'm, I'm glad that a guy like Herb Mashaba is the guy who's in charge of Joburg here he was actually on Cliff Central recently had an interview with Gareth and that guy is he's the right guy because he'll understand employment he'll understand the tangibles in playing society so I think um as fans, we first of all, we've got to support events like the Joburg Open, wherever there is professional golf being played, because there's so much more than just some guy holding up a trophy at the end of the week. These tournaments are sustainable if we look forward to marketing cities, uh, getting communities involved. And again, the Joburg Open has actually been a prime example. So, Chris, thanks so much for your time. I know Thank it's you. limited this week. <laughs> um, I, I'm sure I had more questions, but I think we ended on that because what I really want to take out of this is that the fact that golf tournaments bring so much to South Africa. And um, as far as European tour events go, I think we've got some of the, the highest. I think we've got, what, three, four events? Yeah, on a world, sc- on a world yep. scale, that's still quite a lot. Yep. If we can maintain those four, and of course, great venues like Royal Johannesburg are always part of the process, then it only means really great things. And um, I, I suppose that's just where it ended off. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Chris. Awesome. Cool. I've really got to learn how to end interviews better. <laughs> Not so great. So that was Chris Bentley. Catch him on Twitter at CJ Bents. Uh, really, really fascinating guy. And just someone who's passionate about golf and also passionate about creating so much more than just guys going to go play golf. Like you said, you know, for clubs to survive nowadays, golf is just a element. You know, it's just the one element. There's got to be other things. But, you know, getting back to the whole thing about tournaments. Every 12 people that come over here is going to create one job. Now, people say golf tournaments is lavish expenditure and it's just a waste, but it's so far from that. What you're going to do to market this country to drive tourism and create employment and also just create development in sport. Like you see, you know, when I went to go watch the SA Open and Roy McIlroy was there, I myself felt like a child who wanted to get into the game again. You know, I felt that real kind of passion for the game. If you're going to get people involved in golf, there's so many different aspects to go. There's so many different career opportunities that can be involved there. You know, you can become a greenkeeper. Um, you know, you can become part of the ground staff there. It's a good, honest day's living and there's decent money in it. And it's a sought after thing. And golf clubs can become great parts of uh, communities around the country. This week it is the Schwane Open. So there's nice back to back tournaments here at the moment in the Kauteng area. So on the back of the Joburg Open being such a massive success, it was 11th playing now. Uh, Schwane Open follows up. So we go back to back. Be really great if maybe the Cape Town Open became a bigger thing. Uh, it drew more investment and became a bigger uh, thing. Maybe something in KZN could happen. You know, we used to have that, the, the tournament in Durban as well. So stick to the golf. There's so many different opportunities there. And I think it's going to be a really great thing going forward with guys like Chris. Finally, we're going to get into, um, just, I haven't got enough time to get into all the stories that I wanted to touch on today. I have to just go onto the blog and catch up everything, but there's been a, um, a drug 
I wouldn't say drug bust, that's a bit dramatic, but some uh, some ex-international players have been, well, naughty boys in Paris. Some stories about James O'Connor and Ali Williams. Good evening. Former All Black Ali Williams has spent the night in a jail cell in Paris after being caught allegedly trying to buy cocaine. He was with former Wallaby party boy James O'Connor at the time and the careers of both... Wallaby party boy. <laughs> That's where you know your career hasn't gone so well when you're referred to as that. This could be about to come to an abrupt end. Lewis Hampton reports. Ali Williams likes to play the clown who could forget the time he dressed up as Spider-Man at training. But his latest stunt isn't a laughing matter. The former All Blacks night out with former Wallaby bad boy James O'Connor turned into a night in, in the cells that is, at this Paris police station. The pair were arrested near one of the city's most iconic landmarks at 3am on Saturday morning. Police say they found Williams in a car, buying two bags of cocaine from two suspected drug dealers, while O'Connor stood outside as a lookout. The police, for the moment, just said that <laughs> while they were trying to arrest him, he tried to get rid of the cocaine, but that he didn't manage. Racing 92 has suspended the 35-year-old indefinitely, saying if it's proved, it would not only be against the law, but also a serious breach of club ethics. The drug scandal comes just over a week after Williams Racing teammate Dan Carter was arrested for drink driving in the French capital. New Zealand-born French international Tony Marsh spent nine seasons playing in France. He believes foreign players often aren't looked after. The support that you get um, from your clubs is potentially going to be minimal depending on what clubs you go to. Definitely, yeah, a lot of challenges around that. Um, and at times you can feel, feel quite isolated um, and by yourself up there. It's not the first time Williams' off-field antics have landed him in hot water. In 2007, he was sent home from a Blues Super Rugby trip to South Africa following a late-night drinking session. In 2002, he also admitted mixing Viagra tablets into beer being drunk by Auckland teammates and coaches. Not only could he lose his contract, but he could face jail time. Drug use is a serious crime in France and carries a maximum penalty of a year in prison and a $5,500 fine. A night out, leaving Williams with a legal hangover that won't go away quickly. Lewis Hampton, News Hub. Bad boys, huh? Ali Williams, damn. He's still a likeable guy. Wow, that's pretty funny. That is pretty much it for the time we have this week, unfortunately. I did want to get into about Abel Villas getting to 9,000 runs, um, which is an incredible, incredible feat. And it was basically a runner ball. Um, I'm going to do some more more stat work on that to show you how incredible it was. So what I wanted to do was just discuss how the other players are looking. Because, you know, obviously right now uh, cricket is just dominated by some superb bats. When we've got Virat Kohli, Hashim Amla, Quinton Lecoq, Steve Smith, David Warner, Kane Williamson. All really, really incredible guys. AB, I, I believe in, in many ways, is at the top of that tree. Um, of course, you know, he's had some injury layoffs now. Whether he's going to play test cricket again, you know, there's some side stories that people get lost in. But what we really need to look at is just look at the stats and look at what ha- has happened. He's got to 9,000 runs for any of those guys. He's got to a, a rapid rate, 205 innings. So I put together a blog post, which you've gone to the balance.co.za right now, you can see. And it's basically where these guys are going to be, the, the, the chasing pack, so to speak. So what I've done is I've just taken a, a basic equation of uh, runs scored, uh, runs still to score, and uh, worked out how quickly they'll get to there. So... I'm not going to break it to you now. You can go read the article. It's well worth it. 
which two players are on course to kind of beat him and which of the players who basically through time could also just kick on and really up their game and beat him. Either way, if anyone was to beat AB's record of getting to 9,000 runs in less innings, they're going to have to do bloody well. But, you know, this is the great thing about the top-level sport. The best inspire the best. And we as fans, well, we're the ones who really win at the end of the day because we get to watch amazing, amazing sport. That is it for this week. Big thanks to Chris Bentley, my guest from Royal Johannesburg and Kenston Golf Club today. What an amazing place. What a fascinating guy. Um, hope you enjoyed the interview. I'm going to start doing a few more things while I actually go to people's places to work um, you know, and just get some different interviews for you rather than just the usual. But like I said, uh, next week, because we, we'll have more Super Rugby to go on, I'll get some more inside opinions uh, around that. And uh, keep up with the crickets and the Proteus Tour of New Zealand. Thanks so much for joining me. Go on to the Bounce for this uh, entire uh, show. It's podcast form. Also with the various clips along with that. I've got some really great uh, behind the sort of scenes of tennis, women's tennis. I've got a great video there for you. And you can find out more about Ali Williams and James O'Connor being naughty bad boys. And just a whole bunch of stuff. The Bounce will today. Otherwise, catch me on Twitter at Follow the Bounce. And if you want to get in touch with me about something a bit more in-depth, well, you're welcome to email me, ben at thebounce.co.za. Thanks for joining me. Catch you back next week. Cliffcentral.com.